It's the Farmer to Farmer podcast, episode 83, and this is your host, Chris Blanchard. Jim Garrettson of Wood Prairie Family Farm in Aroostook County, Maine, is not just a potato farmer. He's a potato artist. Wood Prairie Farm provides certified organic seed potatoes and other products to customers around the country through their mail order catalog. Certified organic since 1982, Wood Prairie Family Farm has 40 acres in production with 10 or 12 of those in seed potatoes each year. After an orientation to the history of Wood Prairie Farm and the potato culture of Aroostook County, we dig into the whys and the hows of growing a great crop of potatoes from seed warming and green sprouting through weed control all the way to harvest. We also discuss the ins and the outs of producing Maine certified potato seed. Jim is an observant and specific farmer and marketer and really brings out the details of what goes into bumper yields and high quality spuds. We don't get into everything else that Jim does, but I think it's worth mentioning here. Jim was named by the editors of the Etna Reader to, the, to that magazine's 2011 list of 25 people who are changing the world. Jim is also one of those organic farmers who spends a huge amount of his time serving the community. Jim is the president of the Organic Seed Growers and Trade Association. He served for more than 20 years on the Maine Organic Farmers and Gardeners Association Certification Committee, and he has about a dozen other roles that he's played in the organic farming movement. I first met Jim when I was farming in Maine. He used to pick me up on his way down to board meetings for the Maine Organic Farmers and Gardens Association so that he could go down specifically to show up and make sure that they were doing the right thing when it came to working with GMOs back in the late 1990s. Potatoes were my first vegetable love, and they still hold a special place in my heart. That may have influenced my decision not to cut and slash this episode too much. While it's the longest episode of the Farmer to Farmer podcast to date, I'm confident that it's got a ton of value right to the end. Enjoy. The Farmer to Farmer podcast is made possible with the generous support of Vermont Compost Company, founded by organic crop growing professionals committed to meeting the need for high quality compost and compost-based living soil mixes for certified organic plant production. VermontCompost.com. The Farmer to Farmer podcast is also brought to you by your support. Whether you're donating to the show at farmertofarmerpodcast.com slash donate, shopping at Amazon through the link at farmertofarmerpodcast.com slash Amazon, or showing us your love by leaving us a review on iTunes or Stitcher, your support makes a difference. Thank you. Jim Garrettson, welcome to the Farmer to Farmer podcast. Hi, Chris. It's good to be here. So glad you could join us today. I'd like to start off today by, by having you tell us a little bit in your own words about Wood Prairie Family Farm. Okay. Well, uh, we started up Wood Prairie Family Farm, uh, which is located in northern Maine in Aroostook County. Uh, we started it back up in the mid-70s, so we've been farming uh, organically for 40 years. Uh, we've been certified organic by MOFCA since 1982. Um, our farm is in total 115 acres. We own 110 acres and rent uh, one field, a five-acre field from neighbors. Um, and as is typical of farms in New England, about half of the land is in woods and half is in field. So we've got uh, 56 acres of farmland, and of that, uh, we cleared the trees off of 38 acres. Uh, in most cases, they were trees that had grown back anywhere from 30 to 70 years since the uh, uh, the old-timers had originally cleared the fields. And the fields were originally cleared about 100 years ago, right before World War One. So of the uh, 56 acres that we've got as farmland, 48 acres of that is uh, rotated cropland, and the balance, 8 acres, is uh, in buildings and pasture. 
and the uh, 48 acres of rotated farmland. We have a four-year rotation. Our main crop is um, organic, main-certified seed potatoes, so that allows us to grow 10 or 12 acres of seed potatoes a year. And then in rotation, we also grow uh, spring grain, uh, usually wheat, sometimes oat, sometimes winter rye. Um, and then uh, uh, we have a hay crop mix of uh, uh, grass and uh, clovers. And then uh, the year prior to going back into potatoes, uh, we have plow down crops of buckwheat and rapeseed as a biofumigant. And then in the fifth year, we're back to potatoes. And those seed potatoes, that's really the cornerstone of your operation. Y- yes, it is. Um, there's an old saying in Aroostook County um, that you can't make any any money on any crop besides potatoes. And there's, in many ways, it's a little bit of a truism. Um, uh, Aroostook County has been growing potatoes. The first settler, uh, first European settlers came in. There were some French that came up, uh, Acadian French, in the late 1700s. The English started coming in in uh, uh, 1807. In our town, the first English came in from central Maine in 1827. And uh, uh, pretty quick, they uh, cleared the trees off. All the land up here was forested. There wasn't anything clear uh, to speak of. So uh, at one time, uh, there were hundreds and hundreds of thousands of acres that had had the uh, trees cleared off, mostly in the 1800s. And uh, once the railroads came in in the 1880s and 1890s, that opened up the market. So they shifted away from um, manufacturing starch, which was kind of a way like turning corn into, into moonshine. It was a way of adding value and condensing uh, that crop into a valuable crop that could be more easily shipped. So they did that with starch. There was a big demand for starch uh, because of starch clothing. But once the uh, railroads came in, that allowed Maine potatoes to uh, be exported as table stock or eating potatoes uh, down the East Coast uh, in rail cars. And, and that really uh, catapulted Maine's production ahead so that um, it dominated for many decades uh, last century as the number one potato-producing uh, state, and that peaked in the early 1950s uh, at 237,000 acres of potatoes. And then since then, as everybody knows, the production has shifted uh, to the west, uh, Idaho, Colorado, Washington, Oregon, states like that. That industry was in doing potatoes for what they call table stock, right, for, for eating potatoes. Yes, that's right. But you guys don't really do eating potatoes. Well, uh, it's true. Um, a certain portion of any northern tier state that's growing potatoes is going to grow seed. Um, uh, and Maine uh, gained a reputation for a very high quality seed that uh, the market really uh, wanted. Um, I think it was Wisconsin uh, that developed the first uh, state seed certification program in 1914. So just over a hundred years ago, and I think Maine came up with their system one or two years later. So there's been this uh, Maine certified seed system in place for a hundred years, and I think the system that we have in Maine is probably at least as good as anybody else's system. So then you combine a, ge- a good seed certification system with um, 
fairly steady, equally distributed rain and uh, cool nights and warm days, which is what potatoes love, plus the uh, great extent of well-drained uh, caribou silt loam that we have in northern Maine, and you have what became known as the potato empire, and uh, Maine was dominant uh, uh, in the potato market, primarily for table stock, but secondarily for seed. Uh, and the seed customers would be anybody south of us to where there would be uh, um, enough insect activity that might uh, vector and spread uh, virus that uh, it would pay for somebody uh, at a further south in latitude to buy new seed every spring because they would end up getting a better yield from northern grown seed. What does the seed certification process consist of? Well, uh, it's run by the state of Maine, uh, Department of Agriculture, and uh, in the springtime after you get done planting, uh, you fill out a form and you enter the seed that you want certified, and then um, you have uh, state seed inspectors that come out and check our crop for freedom from disease uh, three times during the growing season. And uh, once you get done harvest, you fill out a, a digging report uh, indicating how many hundredweight of every variety you uh, harvested. And then you also submit a 400 tuber sample to the state that the um, state of Maine owns a farm in Homestead, Florida, down by the Everglades. And they take that sample, um, like we'll send down about 40, uh, 40 bags. Uh, and 400 tubers is, is about a 50-pound bag. So we send down about uh, 40 uh, samples, which are then uh, placed in a grow-out test uh, at the uh, state of Maine farm in Homestead, Florida. And then beginning about Christmas time, the inspectors from up here in Maine, they go down uh, and spend two or three weeks in Florida, um, not on vacation, but on working in the hot <laughs> sun, uh, doing what are called the Florida readings. So they're reading for virus, and that becomes a pass-fail test. If you pass the test, then you are allowed to put blue uh, main certified seed tags on the bags of seed that you're sending. And if even if your even if your readings were um, good during the summer, but if you got uh, late season aphid flight that could have spread virus, uh, if you have too high of a disease, meaning over 5% in Florida, you flunk and you can't uh, uh, sell it as main certified seed. So it's a rigorous system, it's a good system, and you do have to start with uh, recognized varieties. You, uh, you know, you've you got to start with something that is um, recognizable by the seed certification people. Which must be an interesting process for you guys, because your varieties are not your run-of-the-mill varieties. Uh, while that's true, uh, we've been fortunate that the um, uh, state of Maine seed certification people, after initial skepticism 30 years ago, um, they very quickly came around. There were some good people that were running the program back in those days, and uh, while they may have been skeptical that an organic grower could meet their requirements, uh, you know, you had to hand it to them. At least they were open-minded and let us prove ourselves. And uh, uh, and now, 30 years later, uh, we continue to get um, good disease readings uh, and sell uh, high-quality seed that, in fact, um, uh, North Dakota State University did a three-year trial uh, back in the last decade 
uh, comparing different varieties of organic seed from different sources around the country, and consistently our seed came out on top in terms of overall yield and number one uh, pack out. So um, bottom line is we're really advantaged by being in Maine. Uh, we've got everything going for us, and uh, we're able to produce uh, some of the highest quality seed potatoes in the United States, and our customers are, are loyal because of that. How did you guys get into doing seed potato production? Doing specialty seed potato production would not be the first thing I, I would think that would come to mind to somebody back in the early 1980s trying to start an organic farm. Yeah, well, and it didn't. Um, um, you know, for 10 years uh, in the 1980s, we sold at local farmers markets. We had three farmers markets and we sold there for 10 years. And then uh, in 1990, uh, we started up the second uh, CSA project in the state of Maine. And we ran that for four years. And, you know, what we faced with both of those enterprises was the fact that there just aren't any people up here. Um, Arusa County, Maine is the largest county east of the Mississippi. Uh, in terms of land area, it's larger than the states of Connecticut and Rhode Island combined. Uh, it is the most sparsely populated county east of the Mississippi River. Uh, in our county, we have 70,000 people. Um, and it, it just is, it's a challenge because there aren't that many people here. There's a lot of people that still keep gardens. Uh, so it's not, you know, this would be the opposite end of being in a place like Portland, Maine, or Boston, or Philadelphia, or Washington, D.C., where you have, you know, a high demand, not many people that raise their own gardens. So I guess it required us to kind of do out of the box thinking as to how how can we make a living uh, growing organic crops. So trying to sell potatoes in Aroostook County is um, every bit as easy as selling coal in Newcastle. And it only <laughs> dawned on us at some point that uh, mail order uh, was a way that we could um, get our product and get retail dollars just as we had gotten used to with the farmer's market sales and the CSA sales and really not be restricted in where we uh, sent the product. So um, we came up with that as an idea uh, almost 30 years ago and um, started in and, and uh, you know, uh, I guess the proof's in the pudding. Um, I think we benefited and maybe helped to create kind of this renaissance of specialty potatoes that was occurring in the late 80s and 1990s. Um, and probably a lot of your listeners are growing uh, specialty varieties of potatoes and selling them at the farmer's markets or at their farm stands. And there was a time, you know, you go back to the 1970s and there were no golden or yellow fleshed varieties. There were no uh, purple varieties that were being grown. Um, so as the interest in different varieties came up, those of us that um, saw a niche uh, to be supplied, you know, we benefited. So we we uh, continue to have um, customers in all 50 states, though the majority of them are east of the Mississippi River. But um, uh, we have them all over, and, and I uh, am grateful for, you know, the California, Oregon, and Washington uh, crowd that uh, definitely wants uh, potatoes and, and likes the variety, uh, the selection of the varieties that we have. 
So when you were getting into the business and those potatoes weren't really out in commerce, where did you go to source those original varieties? Well, uh, that that was one good thing uh, here in the state of Maine. The state of Maine uh, has the Maine Seed Potato Board, and they have a uh, propagation facility, a tissue culture propagation facility, isolated in the North Maine woods about 20 miles west of us in the, in the town of Oxbow. And uh, they had a really pretty remarkable collection. And then uh, they were... Uh, willing to work with us to bring in uh, varieties from, you know, uh, Cornell and some from uh, Wisconsin that they didn't have that we were interested in. And then I was able to deal with, um, uh, you know, good people like Chuck Brown, who's a USDA potato breeder in Washington State, and um, he provided access to uh, roast and apple. I know we got that from him. I think we got a couple of two, maybe even three varieties from him. And so, you know, one by one, we've built up and we now grow um, about, we grow about 24 varieties, but that includes about every year we're growing four varieties in our trials that we're uh, continuing to look over to see if we're going to add them as a mainline variety. So we're offering about 20 varieties a year. And if we have enough, we offer uh, some of these uh, experimental varieties to our customers just so that they can get some experience with them to see if it's going to pan out for them. One of the varieties that you grow is one that you guys actually discovered, right? Yeah. Uh, the variety Prairie Blush is one that, um, I, you know, my terminology is that we discovered it. And uh, in the crop of 2001, uh, I was grading a, a seed lot of Yukon Gold that we had grown, and I found a single tuber come across the grading line that... Um, had a pink blush covering, uh, no, oh, probably about a third, maybe half of the skin area. And it was extraordinary. It was very beautiful. So I set that potato aside. I put it in a bag and I marked it and marked what uh, lot it was out of. And then the next spring, uh, we planted that out and we put a flag around it to make sure we'd keep track of it. And when we harvested uh, that hill that fall, Every tuber in that hill had similar coloration of a pink blush that took up between a quarter and half of the uh, skin area. So it's a bicolor potato. And from that point, uh, we continued to grow it. I knew that we had something. And once we had enough uh, tubers, uh, we were able to eat some of them. And it really um, is one of the best tasting varieties that we've ever come upon. And we, at the same time, brought some up to the uh, potato breeder at the Potato Experiment Farm in Presque Isle, and uh, that was uh, Dr. Zanida Ganga. And she uh, conducted some tests on uh, this variety and uh, um, documented that it had a specific gravity a little bit less than Yukon Gold. So specific gravity, if you'll recall, is where you compare the density of something to the density of water. So water is going to be 1.000, and potato density is going to be something like 1.067 up to 1.085 or 089. So the higher the specific gravity, the drier the potato is, and Yukon Gold is a pretty dry potato, and this Prairie Blush is uh, several notches less on the specific gravity, which I think actually for some people the Yukon Gold is too dry of a potato. 
and I guess in the uh, in the fullness of time, I knew that we had a winner when after a few years after we'd been offering this, uh, one of our experienced market growers um, uh, told me that she was uh, giving up growing um, uh, German butterball. And I don't know if uh, you've tried it or if your listeners have, but German butterball is pretty much the uh, the most outstanding variety out there in terms of taste. So when she said she was giving up uh, butterball, um, I asked her, well, what was the reason for that? And she said, well, we've been growing prairie blush, and the prairie blush uh, tastes better, and it's a higher-yielding variety, uh, shorter season and higher-yielding, so there's no point to growing the German butterball. So from that point onward, I knew that we had a winner, and in fact, we entered it in the... Uh, well, back then it was the Mail Order Gardening Association. Now it's the Direct Gardening Association into their Green Thumb Award. And we did win an award uh, uh, the year that we introduced this into the market. So it's uh, it's been a very popular variety and, and is, is really great tasting and uh, has a growth habit quite similar to Yukon Gold. Uh, it does have a, a higher set than Yukon Gold, which is good because that's one of the weaknesses of Yukon Gold. But... Uh, it's uh, about five days later than Yukon Gold, and uh, you know it's a great variety that we were um, uh, thrilled to have found and, and uh, happy to put our uh, our name on it, Prairie Blush. When you're growing seed potatoes, how does that how does that process work? You must be starting with with stock that's clean of virus, clean of disease. Where do you get that, and then what's the process of actually going through the seed potato production as opposed to just doing the doing table stock is it is it just a matter of the inspection or how does that work yeah well um all potatoes even heirloom varieties all potatoes nowadays are propagated through tissue culture and uh the tissue culture is free of uh, virus disease uh and virus is what the old timers before they had microscopes before they could figure out what what was going on? They used to use the phrase "running out" that a seed lot would have run out, and uh, what it was was a buildup of virus. And it's it's pretty remarkable, but you can get a buildup of virus within one generation. Uh, but more likely, it's going to take a few generations, and then if you get a buildup of more than one uh, uh, type of virus, uh, it can uh, bog down the potato and. I got a call one time from a um, a grower that he he wasn't getting a seed from us, but he said um, he had planted a hundred pounds of seed uh, in the spring and and that fall went to harvest and he harvested a hundred pounds in the fall and uh, he had basically been planting his own seed for many years and it clearly had loaded up with virus uh, to the point where it wasn't productive. So I suggested that next year he could avoid. Um, planting potatoes and go fishing in the summer for all the good that he was going to get. <laughs> but it's an indication that um, uh, what farmers have seen is that a virus is transmitted by aphids primarily. And if uh, the further south you go in latitude, the more you have aphid activity and aphid spread. Uh, so uh, nowadays, the seed potatoes are grown by... Uh, the states, the northern tier states from Maine across to Washington State, and uh, Colorado also grows them uh, in San Luis Valley because they're uh, 8,500 feet elevation. Uh, so that elevation is, gives them, you know, an equivalency to the latitude that we have up north. 
but um, the benefit is in the north you have uh, cooler conditions in the summer, less insect activity, uh, less vectoring, and the production of higher quality seed that's going to be lower in virus. So um, the origination facilities uh, that the main uh, seed potato board has at their porter farm, um, they, through tissue culture, they grow out um, basically mini tubers, and we contract for the production of mini tubers, and then we plant those out in the field, and then we grow them for a couple of generations, uh, multiply them up before we sell them to our customers. So when we're sending um, samples to Florida, you know, very often we've got uh, three generations of every variety. Uh, so what we're sending to Florida is often a couple of those generations that are going to be for sale. Um, and then, um, you know, the inspectors come and make sure that the uh, uh, tubers that are being shipped out are uh, meeting uh, grade for quality. Um, and, you know, we affix the uh, certified seed uh, tag to the bag, and the customers know that they've, uh, they've met the requirements of main system, which, like I've said before, it's a good system. And then the actual process of, of growing potatoes, can you walk us through how you do that at Wood Prairie Farm and what it is that makes a difference for you guys in, in growing them? Because I assume you're really good at growing potatoes. Well, um, uh, when I first landed in here um, 40 years ago, I was 21 years old, I uh, had spent all of the money that I had uh, on the farm that I bought, 40 acres at $150 an acre, $6,000. And then I had to work, so I worked uh, the first fall. I worked for Bradbury Brothers um, on their potato harvester and then uh, uh, was working in uh, local potato houses, which uh, is, is what Maine calls their potato storages, and uh, putting up uh, seed and table stock. Uh, so, you know, basically I've, I've gained 40 years' experience of, of uh, working with and growing potatoes. So um, I guess once you gain... Through experience, the next spring I worked for another farmer in town, in town helping him plant his potato and oat crop. And, uh, you know, so you, you gain experience first working for others and then second working for yourself. So uh, much of what we do isn't that much different than any of your listeners that are raising potatoes. But, you know, as you might imagine, there are some um, uh, ways of doing uh, growing seed, and, and a lot of what we've tried to do is learn how the old-timers did things before they had um, uh, things like insecticides. So now, in order to minimize aphids, uh, farmers uh, have um, uh, sprayers with cabs in it and filtered units so they don't have to breathe in the spray, and they're spraying these really, really heavy-duty insecticides um, which, you know, uh, they do a pretty good job, but it takes, um, you know, three seconds for uh, some of the uh, really powerful insecticides to kill the aphids, and they can transmit in the first uh, uh, second, you know. So that aphid can spread the, tran you know, can transmit that disease from a sick plant to a formerly healthy plant, but after that, you know, it's dead. So anyway, you know... To me, there's a need for a paradigm change, and I'm not saying that my conventional neighbors need to go back, but our way of doing it is to look at how they did uh, things before they had insecticides. So um, the trick that we use is called tuber unit planting, 
and that allows you to um, take a mother tuber and then say you cut it into four uh, seed pieces and then we sequentially plant those four seed pieces right in order so that they're planted in the ground in order. So every tuber uh, of the 25,000 pounds that we plant is divided into, you know, it's cut on the back of the planter um, and we have built, um, based on a design we saw of some old farmers that did it, we've got a two-row tuber unit planter which uh, goes down the row at about half a mile per hour and we've got four workers on back that are taking green sprouted potatoes from the pit potato hopper and placing them on a segmented conveyor belt uh, uh, sequentially so that they are tuber unit planted in the ground. So the benefit of this is uh, we rogue our fields like the old timers did, removing the rogues or the plants that express virus. And um, if you have, um, you know, as you're going through the field, you'll see maybe the first thing that might catch your eyes, you've got three or four plants in a row that are three or four inches lower than the other plants in the row, and that would be an indication of virus. Then you look more closely at it, and you can see uh, some striation or discoloration or deformity in the leaves, and and uh, you pick out the one plant that looks uh, the worst, and then you look at the seed piece, and then, you, oh, you know, our term is that you jigsaw puzzle the seed piece back together, so you start pulling plants out until you've got all of the original seed pieces that made up that mother tuber. So we take those um, uh, plants out of the field and destroy them, and what that does is it prevents an aphid that blows in here from the south that if it were to feed on one of those sick plants and then jump onto a healthy plant, as soon as it inserts its probe, it takes one second for it to transmit that virus. So that was where I was getting back to the uh, paradigm failure of using in insecticides, because an insecticide will not prevent it from spreading that. And there are some aphids, actually, that, you know, that bring disease with them in their system as they blow in here. Um, but the point is... To, if you can eliminate the inoculum, the virus inoculum in your field, then you have the greatest possibility of raising plants that are going to be free of virus. And, you know, it's required. I mean, the seed inspectors come out and, and they can spot the virus and, and you get scored against it. So we go through, uh, you know, in a normal year, uh, we go through on a weekly basis uh, for four or five weeks uh uh, roguing out any uh, virus that's in the field. So it's fairly labor-intensive, and, and nowadays with labor costs being what they are and not finding people that really want to, you know, walk in hot, hot fields, uh, it's not commonly done. Uh, some people do it uh, every year. Other people uh, will rogue their fields when they've got uh, a problem uh, that's been identified. But in every case but ours, I think we're the only one that is doing tuber unit planting anymore. If you've got a little runty plant, uh, it's going to be shorter than the two neighbors next door that are going to shade it. So uh, there's a much less uh, likelihood of pulling out or of identifying and pulling out that plant than if you've got them tuber unit planted because you can see four plants in a row that are starting to express virus is a lot easier to see than four random plants hiding out under the canopy of larger plants over them. Somewhere in your acre field. Are you guys watch, 
are you guys walking every row then? Uh, well, depending on uh, we can we can do a good job on four rows apiece if we um, if we think that um, oh if there's more you know if we've got a virus problem we're dealing with we'll take two rows and if it's a variety that we historically don't have much problem with we can take six or eight rows apiece so. You know, it, it's it's not a terrible thing, but on our 10 or 12 acres, we can do a really good job. You know, if you're growing, you know, 400, 500 acres, good luck. Yeah. And and how long does it take you to, to walk 10 or 12 acres of potatoes? How many man hours do you have into that? Well, uh, we'll start at 7 in the morning and work till noon. And uh, we've got uh, Megan, my wife, and I, we're the spotters. And um, we'll carry a can of red spray paint and and have some orange diversion ditch flags belt and suspendering it. So we'll we'll identify a plant in the unit and we'll spray it and then we'll put in a flag. And then we've got one of our kids driving uh, the tractor pulling uh, the roguing cart, which is a high clearance cart that um, the diggers follow behind and they'll um, pull up the flag and they'll pull up the plant. And then they uh, dig into the hill and remove any tubers that might have developed, and we have them for dinner. Um, and then they put the plants on the roguing cart, and we take them out. So there's going to be five of us. We have five of us going through, and, and we can do the 10-acre field, uh, you know, one morning a week, five hours for five people. At what stage of growth are you doing this roguing process? Yeah, the potatoes have to be mature enough in order to um, express virus. Um, so, you know, it's usually, it depends on the variety. Some varieties like Onaway, um, which is a short season round white, just, uh, you know, one of the qualities of that variety is it doesn't break with virus until fairly late. Um, but you can usually see it when the plants, in most varieties, when the plants are getting up to about a foot tall. So we start in as soon as they're big enough to express. Once you plant the potatoes with the with your with your belt planter, then what's next? Well, uh, let me back up because there's one important step before we plant. A month before we our expected planting date, uh, we uh, green sprout our seed, and we plant about twenty five thousand pounds, and virtually all of that we green sprout. And uh, green sprouting or chitting is a European technique. Uh, it's an optional technique, but I think it's one that is really extremely valuable for anybody growing potatoes organically. Um, what it does, um, what it amounts to is, you know, there's two uh, important uh, steps to it. Uh, the first week in darkness, you, uh, you break the potatoes out of dormancy at about 70 to 75 degrees. And then once the potatoes have broken dormancy, you uh, and, and the way you determine that is as soon as you see any kind of growth coming out of the eye, that means they've broken dormancy. So at that point, you drop the temperature back to 50 or 55 degrees, and you expose the potatoes to light. So we've got um, we've got seven or eight hundred wooden green sprouting trays that we have uh, built. And uh, we've got the plans for them on our website, but um, uh, I got, uh, we, we bought 20 or 30 of them from uh, the potato farm that, uh, the experiment farm up here that had an English guy work for him one year and, and uh, he convinced them how great green sprouting was and they used them one year and they, 
never used them again because it is a fair <laughs> amount of extra labor. And, and um, you know, the, the agriculture practice in the USA is extensive agriculture. The agriculture practice in Europe historically has been intensive. And I think the organic growers, uh, ourselves included, are very much intensive um, producers. So green sprouting is really good for intensive producers. Um, the benefit of this is that by starting four weeks early and doing this preconditioning, uh, you can knock uh, 10 to 14 days off the growth cycle in the field. So the benefits of this are... One, if you're selling at a farmer's market, you can get potatoes 10 to 14 days before your competition, which that's a real advantage. Um, in our case, it allows us to uh, grow some long-season varieties that otherwise we would have a hard time fitting into our uh, short-growing season in northern Maine. Um, but I think the one thing that would benefit every organic grower is that it shortens the, the, the growing window um, you know, it basically cuts down by 10 or 14 days the opportunity for something to, to go wrong with your potatoes. And if you look at August, uh, you know, which end of August is when we start killing our potatoes, you know, you can have Colorado potato beetle, you can have leaf hopper, you can have uh, aphids that have come in, you can have late blight pressure, rarely early blight pressure, um, uh, you can have drought, you can have, have excessive rain. In other words, that 10 to 14 days of, of advantage when you were uh, uh, warming and maturing that crop in your garage where it's completely safe, um, it, it really pays for itself in August because you can get uh, the yield that you're after uh, by not having to uh, make them go through what seems like an eternity, but it's only 14 more days in, in uh, late summer, early fall. When you talk about exposing these to light, how much light are you exposing them to? You said in your garage. So it's not like you've got these out in your greenhouse like I would for growing a tomato plant. Yeah. No, uh, we've had people that have um, put them in their greenhouse, and and that's violating the second rule. And the second rule is to drop the temperature down to 50 to 55 degrees. You know, the greenhouse is going to be that time of year, you know, 85 or something like that. And here's the reason that you want to drop the temperature you want to cut down the respiration rate of that potato. And handling the potato is all important. Um, I think that's one one of the reasons that Maine can provide such high-quality tubers is because in the fall, after harvest, um, you know, we, like every potato grower everywhere, we superize our crop for about 10 days, high humidity, 50 to 55 degrees uh, after the crop has been harvested. Uh, by that time, it's around the 20th of um, October, and uh, once the superization process is done, which is a wound healing, it, it allows the skin to on the potato to uh, uh, heal itself over any cuts or damages that might have occurred with uh, harvest. So once that process is done, we open the doors in the underground potato storage uh, on any night where it's colder, um, outside than it is in the storage, and we run uh, fans and a humidifier all night long, bringing in cold air. That allows us to drop our crop from, you know, field temperature 55, 58 degrees down to about 40 degrees by about the 5th or 8th of November, and then we uh, we let it drop down to 38 and store the crop at 38 degrees. By, store by cooling them down so quickly, that arrests 
the physiological aging of the tubers. And what you're trying to do is have youthful tubers that are full of vigor because that vigor translates to higher um, yield uh, in the next generation. So by um, that's another benefit of growing seed potatoes in the cool north is uh, physiological aging can be looked upon as uh, a measure of stress. So in a hotter summer, we're going to have the, the tubers that we harvest in the fall are going to be physiologically older than they would have been in another year where the temperatures were cooler. So uh, in that way, if we had a hot summer, we're going to want to uh, cool them down that much more quickly to, to try to arrest that. And th this is part of you know the, the uh, value and the benefit of Maine potatoes is because we cool down so quickly in the fall. And further south of us, you know, where they have warmer falls, um, they can't cool down the potatoes as quickly. And what they have to plant uh, in the spring uh, would not have as much vigor and it would not perform as well. Uh, so the 50 to 55 degree step number two in green sprouting is a continuation of this management uh, technique of maintaining vigor in the seed piece. So you would not, even though you would have great light conditions in a greenhouse, it is absolutely uh, too uh, too warm in there. Now, one, play, one way you could do um, uh, benefit from the greenhouses, if you didn't have time to benefit from a full green sprouting procedure, I would definitely, even three days at warm temperature is going to uh, benefit. There was an informal test done by uh, one of the, um, uh, well, the guy that ran the Porter Farm up here 25 or 30 years ago. And uh, he uh, planted uh, about half of a truckload of seed on a Friday, and then they were government workers, so they didn't work on the weekend. So back on Monday, uh, they were back to work. So over the weekend, they parked that truck in a garage, and they turned up the heat to 75 degrees, and then they planted that next half of that seed lot on Monday, and they got a 10 to 15% yield from those tubers that they planted on Monday compared to the Friday, just simply really? by warming that seed up uh, for the three days. So that would be something I definitely recommend. You know, it may be um, too involved for many farmers to go through a full green sprouting uh, regime in the spring because everybody's busy in the spring. But just doing that of laying out your tubers so the uh, warmth can get at them to warming them up. Um, one benefit of warming them up at a high temperature, say 70, 75, even 80 degrees, is that you are suppressing the apical dominance in that tuber. The apical or the seed end is the end opposite the stem. And that's where there tends to be a concentration of eyes. And um, when potatoes sprout in cold conditions, say 42, 43 degrees, uh, the apical end is dominant and, and you're going to get a king sprout and that king sprout suppresses the secondary sprouts. Well, what we're after, uh, particularly as seed growers, is we want every eye on that tuber to sprout. So by sprouting at 75 degrees, you're suppressing apical dominance. You're encouraging the secondary sprouts to, to form. And the reason that's valuable, and I believe it's valuable for everybody, whether you're raising table stock or whether you're raising seed, but it's this, the number of tubers, which is called the tuber set, 
the number of tubers is a function of how many stems you've got per acre or per 100 feet. So if you're warming at 75 degrees, you're going to get more uniform sprouting. That's going to give you more uh, stems per acre. That's going to give you more set per acre. And if you have a good set, that is laying the foundations for the highest possible marketable yield that you can get. If you end up um, um, planting cold seed that was sprouted at 40 or you know 43 degrees, you're typically going to get one or two tubers that go oversize, and then you're going to get some uh, little peewees that go along with that. You know, you look at that uh, tuber and its its response to its biological command is simply to reproduce itself. It just needs to produce one or two tubers, and then it's got its mandate. Farmers, on the other hand, we're trying to manipulate that plant to grow as many tubers as reasonably it can. So if you can get, you know, six or eight tubers under that plant and get them all to size up to a marketable weight, you're going to have a much more marketable crop and you're going to make a lot more money than if you uh, sprout them cold. So that's, that's, I think, what the benefit was of the uh, uh, Porter Farm story of them warming up that half of a truckload for three days. I think that helped with getting those secondary sprouts to come out and, and gave them a better yield. And it seems that doing if they were doing that with half a truckload, the light's not so important. So if I just want to if I want to warm my seed before planting it, I could just take, you know, bags of seed and pull them out into the into my relatively warm packing shed and just leave them for three or four days out there before we put them out in the field. Yeah, just just so long as the center of the bag, the tubers at the center of the bag warm up. You know, it's kind of like baking a turkey. Uh, the outside is going to be done a lot quicker than the inside. So that's why I'm saying, you know, maybe spread it out in, in tulip uh, uh, boxes or in bread trays or whatever you have, or right on the floor if, if that was it. But here's the reason that you do the light. The light greens up the tubers, and it prevents the sprouts from elongating and thereby breaking off. So in the absence of light, we've all had potatoes get away from us in the cellar in the dark, and those sprouts are going to grow 6 inch, 12 inch, 2 foot long, and that is because the sprout is searching for light. Well, that is not what you want uh, in in the seed that you're going to plant. Most likely, once the sprout gets beyond 4 inches, it's most likely going to just kind of um, turn black and, and die off. Uh, sometimes it'll turn green and grow, but usually it'll die off and then a new sprout's going to come from the base, but you wasted all of that energy from that tuber and it's definitely going to have an impact on your yield. So the reason after you, uh, step one, you uh, warm the seed up for uh, a week at 70 to 75 degrees, then you drop the temperature to 50 to 55 degrees and you expose the tubers to light. That light will green up the tuber, and it will green up the stem, and it will prevent the stem from elongating. So, uh, well, you know, when well executed, you're going to have a sprout that is about three. It depends on the variety, but for most varieties, it would be about five eighths of an inch or three quarters across, and maybe five eighths of an inch or three quarters tall. And if it's getting longer than that, it means that either you don't have sufficient light so you got to increase the light or you got to cut back uh, the temperature uh, because you've got so much vigor in the seed that it wants to grow so you know there are ways of manipulating that it it, it would be possible that if you got an early generation uh, seed lot of extremely vigorous seed you might need to 
cut that back to, you know, even, uh, you know, 48, 45 degrees, even less. Uh, but usually, uh, more light is, is better. And I know some, oh, there was one farmer we bought a tractor from, uh, 20 years ago and, and he used to, um, um, it was a kind of a challenge for him to always have uh, potatoes by the 4th of July up here. One of the traditional meals is salmon, peas, and new potatoes. So he would have everybody in town save their half-gallon milk cartons, and he would fill that with potato soil, and then he would, you know, he didn't know it was called green sprouting, but he would warm up a tuber, and he would stick that uh, potato into the uh, milk carton full of um, potato soil, and then he had a flatbed truck that would be, you know, eight foot wide and probably 22 feet long. And he would have that entire bed covered with half gallon milk cartons. And then in the daytime, he'd back out into the drive and let the light get at it. And then in the uh, uh, evening, when it would be, you know, in April and early May, it's below freezing most nights up here. He'd just drive that truck in and close the garage door. So it was a it was a great system. And then when he planted those out, he always had the earliest potatoes because of how he was doing it. Where are you guys doing your green sprouting? Well, uh, we've got a shed um, that we built. Oh, it's a, a twenty-four by forty-eight put shed and we transfer the tubers up we've we've learned to um we put green sprouting trays um on a we palletize them and we uh we put um uh, three trays per hundred pounds so uh the stacks are typically eight or ten high to get through the doorway and then three stacks so we might have 30 trays on uh a pallet so it'd be a thousand pounds of seed and then we um, we have these you know one inch uh, ratchet straps that we hold the uh, pallet from splaying out, and we take them up, we load them onto a hay wagon, and 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 uh, drive them up the hill, and then unload them into there. So that works good. Um, we'll uh, turn the lights on, and once it's warmed up, then we open up the doors uh, and let the uh, natural light in. Uh, the light can be either sunlight or incandescent light or fluorescent light. It's it's nothing fancy, but like I say, if the sprouts are growing too long, it means you don't have enough light on them, so increase that light somehow. So you do the week at the warm temperatures, and then you're going to cool things down, expose the potatoes to light for three weeks? Yes. Yeah, I, our our rule of thumb is a month before, like in the old days when when our springs used to be normal and predictable, we'd start green sprouting the middle of April, figuring that we'd be planting the middle of May. Now we've got, you know, there was one year we didn't get on the ground until the last day of May. So this is not a high precision thing. Um, so long as you have adequate light and you can control the temperature, they're not going to get away from you. And if, if you should, you know, you, you start this, say, if we were to start this in, um, in mid April and, and one year, about four years ago, we got our, uh, April weather in March and then we got our March weather in April, but that meant we lost our snow. Usually we lose our snow the last week in April and that year we lost our snow the last week in March. So the ground dried out and we could, you know, we could get on the ground, ground and plant by the end of April. Um, so if you interrupt the green sprouting process, there's no problem whatsoever. You know, you're not going to get the full 10 to 14 day advantage, but if the conditions change, you have nothing to lose. 
if it's if it's the right time to plant potatoes, you want to go ahead and plant them and interrupt it. But um, that's the benefit of green sprouting is there's a flexibility there. But we plan on it being a month ahead of time. But now, especially, you just never know what the spring is going to bring. But I would much rather have my potatoes on those uh, pallets in our shed, safe from any snow or cold weather or something. And, you know, um, we can get some... It just seems like now our winters aren't as mild, they're not as strong or as bad as they used to be. The falls are warmer. It doesn't get cold as quick. But now it seems like um, the last part of winter seems to hang on, and our Aprils and Mays are typically much cooler. And we've got neighbors that are planting, you know, they're using fungicide on the, uh, on the seed um, before they plant it. But, you know, they're planting uh, seed typically in, you know, it's not uncommon that they'll plant when the soil temperature is 42, 43 degrees, and we would never do that as an organic grower. First off, the wound healing, like when you cut a tuber in half, that cut surface will not heal at a temperature below 45 degrees. So planting seed in the ground uh, here in the east with the potential of getting, you know, quite a bit of rainfall, um, is a risk that I'm just not willing to take. In our case, we like to let the soil temperature rise to 50 degrees, and that's taking the temperature at four-inch depth uh, between 7 and 8 o'clock in the morning. Um, uh, you know, sometimes if we see a nice stretch of warm weather coming, we'll start in at 48 degrees, but uh, we would never do it uh, at, at 45 degrees. But that's become a pretty standard practice because our neighbors farms have gotten so big that in order for them to get their crop planted in a timely fashion, they have to start early. And then more and more of them are now process growers uh, growing um, uh, a late variety like Russet Burbank. And, and in order for their economics to work, they've got to get production bonuses from large tubers, which the French fry factory uh, has a better recovery rate, uh, there's less waste in a large tuber than a medium-sized tuber, so the farmers really need that, and, and they can only get it in our climate by planting what I think is is pretty early, but, you know, so far, I guess it's worked for them if you've got fungicide to put on the seed piece. Right. Now, there are some guys, this is a story I still find it a bit hard to believe, but some of those guys out west in the Columbia River Basin in Oregon and Washington... Um, Apparently, the attitude is, well, you got to store your seed somewhere, and they'll start planting on uh, Washington's birthday, and they may go eight weeks before they get emergence. And, you know, okay, maybe you can do that out west where you don't get rain like we get in the east, but, you know, planting tubers aren't going to come up for eight weeks with the rain that we can get in the northeast. Um, uh, no, let me put it this way. Nobody does that here in the northeast. <laughs> When you guys are putting your potatoes in the ground, because you're doing this tuber unit planting, you're cutting these potatoes right there on the potato planter. Three seconds before they go in the ground. So there's no there's no curing process for them. No. Is do you recommend that that an average grower, if I was just growing a crop of of table stock out here in in Wisconsin, is that curing step necessary for me? Well, we we. One one year, uh, we got some calcitic um, limestone, and we had a little 
um, a little bowl of it beside every worker, and we had them cut it, um, cut the tuber, say cut the tuber in half, then cut, uh, put the cut face into the lime, and then lay it on. And uh, you can imagine how much that slowed down the process. And I didn't see any benefit. The idea, uh, the, the double good that I wanted to get from it was as a desiccant, because you, what you want to do with healing is to dry out that cut surface to make it inhospitable for um, pathogenic fungus uh, to come in and, and rot your seed piece. That's what rot's all about. So um, in our case, we've got a, a very well-drained soil that's on the point of being droughty. And in our case, I don't think it's worth it at all. So if you have a very sandy soil, um, I, I think you can probably get away with it if you're on the other end of the spectrum and you've got a clay-type soil and you're in an area where you can get, you know, a fair amount of rain after planting, then you might want to either use calcitic limes. So the other benefit is calcium is the, uh, the wonder mineral, and potatoes love calcium, and I figured that was giving them a boost of calcium was... Uh, could not hurt anything. So if I'm going to use a desiccant, I'm going to use calcium to try to achieve that. So, you know, if, if you felt better by it, um, you know, I, <laughs> my normal, my normal way of experimenting is to do this. Okay. You got two rows of potatoes. Do one thing to one row one way and do your other row the way you normally do and then compare and write it down somewhere. Cause then in the, Ball, you can't remember which row it was that you did which, but and then compare and keep the number of variables down. But you know, uh, no farmer that I know has the time to do replicated plots. But if you can take, you know, like oh, one thing that we spray onto uh, the tubers to help increase tuber sect is a commercial product made by I think it's called Westbray out in California, and it's called Organic Trigger. And uh, they spell the trigger kind of cute. It's T-R-I-G-G-R-R-R. Um, but what it is, it's a proprietary formula. It's OMRI-listed. Uh, but what I believe is in it, they've got cytokinins that they extracted from seaweed. So it helps to increase the tuber set. And uh, my friend uh, Fred Brossi in Idaho, uh, who grows 30 or 40 acres of potatoes, he told me about this about 10 years ago and said that he was using it and a lot of guys in the West were. So we tried it the first year. Uh, we grow more Yukon gold than anything. We grow about an acre of Yukon gold. So half the Yukon gold we applied trigger to. And, and we would do this. The trigger, you got to apply it to um, a seed that is growing. You can't apply it to dormant seed. So once we green sprouted uh, the tubers and broke dormancy, we'd run them over a roller table and we set up a sprayer so we would spray this um, um, uh, trigger on top of them. And uh, oh, so half we did with trigger and half without. And when we were digging, I could not believe the difference, the improvement from the trigger. Uh, back in those days, we used a two row John Deere digger and I could see right from the uh, seat of the tractor. Uh, uh, the, the difference. There was more uni There was more tubers. They were more uniform. There were fewer small ones, fewer oversized ones. It really improved the quality of the crop. So the next year, I think we did 90% uh, Yukon Gold with the trigger and 10% not. We got the same results. And then the year after that, we uh, started to do, do it with every variety that didn't give us the set that we wanted, like Red Dale, 
Um, you know, some of the varieties uh, uh, just don't give you the number of tubers per uh, acre that you'd like to get. So uh, we found that it worked great. Then the year after that, we started spraying it on everything, including the russets and the fingerlings, uh, and we haven't looked back. So that was ex as an ex extensive a test as we found. But the cost per acre, I think I figured out, is only about $30 an acre, uh, and we're getting back, you know, say for 10 acres, we're getting back way, way, way more than uh, $300. I, I hope West Bray is not listening or they might raise the price on that product. But <laughs> it's, a, it's a good deal. And now, you know, working, uh, we work with Mark Fulford, who's an organic farmer here in Maine and a crops consultant, and he has uh, given us some uh, great insight into other materials that we're adding into that. And it varies every year, but, you know, while, when you're spraying one thing, it's easy to just spray several things more. So we're putting on some... Um, uh, hydrolyzed fish and liquid seaweed and some other uh, probiotics to get the crop off to a good start. And I, I really believe that that helps us raise a good crop. And I think it uh, is part of the reason that North Dakota State uh, study um, uh, showed that our potatoes were doing good. If you give a good, you know, rhizosphere around the, the seed where the tubers are developing, that's all important in terms of quality and, and vigor and, and next generation in terms of yield. So the tuber unit planting that you do, does that have any advantages to your average potato grower, or is that really only useful in a seed production setting? I would say that um, uh, given the effort, it's, it's mainly the advantage for seed growers. But I'll tell you this, if you've got a pick-style planter um, and you've got the sprouts that have developed through um, green sprouting, they could, you know, that, that pick-style planter is pretty rough on things, and it could chew up those sprouts. So in our system, um, I would, I, I'm really glad to have this tuber, uh, tuber unit planter designed because it, um, it's very, you know, the seed hopper is very gentle on the sprouts, and our way of handling it is gentle. So those sprouts, you know, 99% of the sprouts that we've grown on them are on those uh, seed pieces as they go into the ground. So that would be the one thing. If if you're going to do this green sprouting, you, you know, the first year you do it, maybe start out easy and see if it's going to fit. If you've got a mechanical um, uh, uh, pick-style planter, uh, just make sure that you're not chewing up the sprout. So that, that would be the only advantage that I could maybe see. And, and there are other types of planters. There's cup planters, I think, maybe are more um, prominent in the West. You know, just make sure that you're not damaging your uh, the sprouts that you've gone to such an effort to develop. So, Jim, with that, we're going to stop here, take a break, get a word from our sponsors, and then we'll be right back. I want to talk to you a little bit more about what to do once you actually get the potatoes in the ground. The Farmer to Farmer podcast is made possible with the generous support of Vermont Compost Company, makers of living potting soils for organic growers since 1992. In the transplant greenhouse, all of your investment in plant material, heat, labor, and overhead depend absolutely on the performance of the media where you expect your plants to grow. And that media has a really hard job to do. Produce a healthy plant in just a few cubic centimeters of soil. When I started farming, I focused on getting the cheapest ingredients I could to make my own potting soil, and later on finding cheap potting soil already put together. 
But I found out what so many farmers have, that saving money on inputs doesn't always result in increased profits. Jennifer at Vermont Compost can tell story after story of customers who switched to less expensive options, but who have come back to Vermont Compost for the consistency and the quality of their potting soils. And even though it's not all about saving money, Vermont Compost Fall Pre-Buy Program can help you get what your plants need at the best price with the best shipping options. Don't miss out. Vermont Compost Fall Pre-Buy Program runs September 21st to December 21st. Taking care of growers by taking care of transplants since 1992. VermontCompost.com This week, the Farmer to Farmer podcast is brought to you by you, our listeners. And the nice thing about that is that I don't need to go on and on about it, because the fact that you're here probably means that you already think that the Farmer to Farmer podcast is kind of cool. We'd love to have your support. One of the easiest ways is to use the link at farmertofarmerpodcast.com slash Amazon to do your shopping on Amazon.com. It doesn't cost you a penny more, and Amazon kicks a percentage of what you spend back to the show. You can also become a patron of the show by setting up a monthly donation to provide ongoing support for the behind-the-scenes efforts that you don't hear about but which make the show what it is. Plus, we've got a couple of cool gifts for you if you go this route. We also have an option to do a one-time donation at farmertofarmerpodcast.com slash donate. Or just keep listening, commenting, sharing, and reviewing. It's awesome that you're here, and I'm grateful for your participation in the podcast. Go to farmertofarmerpodcast.com slash donate for more information and all of the relevant links. Thank you so much for your support. All right, and we're back with Jim Gerritsen from Wood Prairie Family Farm in Bridgewater, Maine. So, Jim, when... Before we went on break, we were talking about getting the seeds in the ground. Now, if I'm if I'm planting potatoes without a potato planter, do I want to be putting those into a trench? Do I want to be setting them on top of the soil and, and building up a hill over them? What's the best way to actually plant those potatoes? Well, I think it, um, the recommendations that we give to our customers is to um, the, the planting depth is more a function of uh, latitude. And the reason is this, if you're down south, um, well, let me back up. Potatoes are a cool season crop. They do not like hot weather. So the way you get around that is if you're in the south, you plant an early spring crop before and then get the tubers to size up uh, before you get, you know, the hot weather coming on. And by hot weather, I mean, you know, potatoes really like it below 90 and that if you start to get steady temperatures above 90, especially above 95 degrees, the potatoes can actually keel over and die. So if you're down south, one way that you should do that is to probably look at planting early and mid-season varieties. And in our catalog and in many catalogs, they uh, they group potatoes by the length of season. I would probably, starting out, avoid late-season varieties, except as an experiment to see if they might fit in uh, your conditions. But if you're down south, I would recommend planting probably uh, three to four inches deep. And that means the tubers that are going to be setting are going to be deep in the soil. And that's going to be helping give a little bit of insulation against that hot summer heat that you're going to be getting towards the harvest end. Now, at the other end of the spectrum, up here in Maine, uh, in the northern tier states, where we're trying to get uh, early spring planted potatoes, we were struggling to get adequate soil temperature. So we like to plant shallow. Um, and in our case, we plant about an inch deep. And if you think about it, the soil temperature an inch down is going to be a lot warmer in the spring than it is four inches down. 
and then at harvest time, you're not going to have to go through as much effort to dig them up. But the caveat for that is if you plant them that shallow, you have to do an extra good job killing dirt up on them to prevent the shoulders of the developing tubers from being exposed to the sunlight where they would uh, turn green and thereby unmarketable. So the planting depth, the way our planter puts it uh, down is uh, we uh, lay down uh, the organic fertilizer with the fertilizer box and that lays down uh, a double line of fertilizer two inches below and two inches outside of the uh, where the seed piece is planted. So if I didn't have a planter, what I would do is uh, with a cotton hoe, I would make a trench maybe uh, four inches deep, say if you were in the north or down to the mid-Atlantic, and then I'd uh, sprinkle in the organic fertilizer that was going to go into the uh, hole, and then I would use the hoe to knock about an inch of dirt on top of that fertilizer, and then I'd plant the seed piece on that, and then I'd cover up the hole and let it grow from there. What are you doing for weed control once those potatoes are in the ground? Okay, we've got a um, we've got a whole series of um, uh, steps that we've refined over the years. So at um, oh, and and here's one interesting thing: um, our farm is about 600 foot elevation. Uh, we're about 200 foot higher than all the other farms in town. We're right on the edge of the North Main Woods, and the elevation goes up a little bit. We're always the last farm in town to lose snow. We're the last guys in town to get on the ground. Just you know, it, It's about 10 days. You, you lose your snow at the end of April, and you're on the ground by the 5th or 10th of, of May. By the, by the time the snow does leave, the sun is high enough in the sky that our mud season is about 10 days long. I know in the Midwest, you guys can have, you know, a two-month mud season, but ours, yes. uh, our winter is long, and that means a short mud season. But typically, we'll be at least five days behind everybody else, else planting potatoes, maybe even a week behind. But with these green-sprouted potatoes, in a normal year, we have the first emergence of any potatoes in the town of Bridgewater. And what we do, uh, we get our, uh, we've got a, a potato flamer, a flamer, propane flamer, where um, the tank is on the back of the tractor and we've got eight burners on the front that give us a curtain of about six or six and a half feet wide. And at 10% emergence, we go out and do uh, flaming. And we got into this habit 20 or 25 years ago, of flaming to try to kill overwintering uh, Colorado potato beetles that were starting to emerge and be on the plants and eat them at emergence. And you know, for every female uh, loaded with eggs, um, uh, a female could lay uh, 400 eggs, and if you could flame them, uh, and all you got to do to kill them is burn off one of their antennae, and that's enough for a lethal kill. Um, problem is, in the last 20 years, uh, the potato bugs are now emerging about a month later than they used to, and I believe, and I've talked to some entomologists from the Midwest who because they were scientists, they wouldn't um, they wouldn't put this in solid terms. But I think they agreed with me. I think the uh, admire uh, the the neonicotinoid uh, insecticide uh, systemic insecticide admire that came in in the mid 1990s has been incredibly effective, especially at wiping out early emerging uh, Colorado potato beetles. So we're not seeing them now for a month after. By that. 
by the time they emerge, the plants are 10 or 12 inches high, and uh, we would do too much damage to um, control the potato bugs that way. But what we learned was when we were controlling uh, for Colorado potato beetles, we were getting excellent in-row weed control. So we've never gotten out of that habit. But what we like to do is at 10% emergence, we flame. Um, typically, those are going to be the king sprouts anyway, and we're not fans of king sprouts on this farm. So we'll burn them back, and, you know, I, I figure that's no uh, drawback. So um, it does a little bit of damage, but it kills everything uh, weed-wise that's going to be growing uh, in-row and between-row. It's the in-row weeds that are the hardest to control. Then seven days after that, we come in with um, with a mid-mount uh, cultivator. Uh, we've got um, three teeth. So we're plant we've got a two-row system. We've got a two-row planter. We cultivate and hoe uh, with a two-row system. So we've got a mid-mount cultivator, um, and these are simply teeth off of either an international harvester field cultivator or a brilliant uh, field cultivator. And this is not any system that we invented. This is an Aroostook County potato system that we've been using for 30 years. And, you know, probably, I don't know, when they when they invented this, it's probably been, you know, 40 or 50 years. But it, it's a system that works very well. So mid-mount, we've got three field cultivator teeth. And the feet on them are what are called calves' tongues. And these, when they're new, they're um, thick metal three inches wide, 11 inches long, and it comes to a point. And uh, they really shovel the dirt up. And uh, it, it's very common in um, potato country. And they do, if you look at them, they have the shape and uh, dimensions of a calf, uh, the tongue of a calf or a you know, small cow. Um, so we put that on. We have them three abreast. And then on the rear mount toolbar or on the rear mount three-point hitch, we have a finger weeder. Uh, which basically uh, we've got uh, a 1953 version of a, uh, a four-row uh, finger weeder, and uh, it, it's about like a Lely or a, a Kovar. If you've got Kovar or Kovaz, we've got one of those two that we use for grain. Um, right. Anyway, same thing. It's a finger weeder, and uh, as we're going down the row, we're burying the potatoes with the mid-mount, and then the finger weeder is scratching uh, down the hill going right in row. And uh, potatoes, once they emerge, they are anchored very well. And so if the first week we flamed at 10% emergence, by the time we're uh, doing the finger weeder, we're probably up to about 60% emergence, something like that, and we're not pulling out. So even the potatoes that haven't emerged, uh, they're not getting ripped out of the ground. So then we wait another week, and then we park the finger weeder for the year. We don't use that again. Uh, we used to finger weed twice, and now um, uh, we think that we've refined it enough to where we can get good control between the flamer and the finger weeder by going through once. But uh, then we attach hose, which um, they call them hose, but I think they're technically spades, and um, uh, they kind of look like a middle buster plow. And the ones that we have, you know, we've had for many years, and they're, they used to be uh, on every potato farm now, but as times change, they're no longer as easy to find. But um, they basically have flexible wings on them, and um, the 
so you've got three teeth in three, you know, uh, that are surrounding two rows. So you've got three sets of teeth. The middle tooth, we back that up in the um, um, bracket that holds it to the toolbar. There's a bolt in there, and it allows you to back it up about three and a half inches. So we back that up three and a half inches, and then we put on the spade, and that allows some of the dirt to uh, flow past those uh, remaining two calves' tongues. So the, the calves' tongue uh, loosen up the soil, and then the hoe uh, throws it underneath the plant. And um, we typically do this uh, hoeing and the cultivating in the evening, uh, especially the hoeing in the evening, because um, during the day, if you've got hot weather, the plants are kind of drooping down. And then once the sun weakens in the sky, the plants uh, start to pick up, you know, the nighttime moisture and they get more erect. So you can throw the dirt underneath the uh, plant without burying the leaves. And we're, you know, we're not fanatical about it, but we're, you know, after we're done finger weeding, we don't want to bury any leaves anymore. Uh, we're trying to throw the dirt under the plant. And what we're trying to achieve is a peaked hill. Um, some people like a flat hill that's maybe three or four inch across. Um, what we strive for is a peaked hill uh, so that, you know, if you do get heavy rain and you've got blight pressure, you're more likely to shed that water down to the row middle rather than infiltrate. If you got a flat top hill, you've got rain that's going to potentially, theoretically, wash blight spores into the hill and you can get tuber contamination of blight spores. So that's our, our design is we like a, a peaked hill. Uh, so we, we do uh, cultivating um, uh, once and then we hoe twice. And the last time I hoe, which is about a week or 10 days after the first time I hoe, is maybe three to five days before we get row closure. And row closure is when uh, the potato plants from one row touch the plants on the other row. So by doing it that close prior to row closure, um, we're getting uh, absolute weed control. There's no light getting in underneath there. And, uh, you know, our weed control is probably in a normal year if we, not that anything is normal anymore, and, and we are getting rain that is preventing us from getting in the field in a timely matter, as I assume most of the people in the east are, are running into at least some of the years. But uh, we can get, you know, 99 probably 99.9% weed control in a normal year. In a normal year, we don't have to do any hand weeding. We can do it just by machine. It sounds like between the calves' tongues and the and the hose that you're using that you're not actually using any hilling discs. No, uh, that was never very popular here, um, and I haven't seen any for 30 years, but they, um, they had some what are truly hose that I'm not sure I can describe them, they're um, they're uh, slightly inclined um, metal, you know, but you really had to know what you were doing to get them adjusted. And what the old timers taught me is that the hose would make the very highest quality hill, but since virtually nobody knew how to adjust them perfectly, you never got a really great hill. So that, I think that's why they went out of favor. And uh, these... I call them spades. The practice up here is called hoeing. I think going back to, you know, probably back when you had horse hose. Um, but it's really a, a spade, which looks like a middle buster plow. And by doing that, you can get a very high quality hill and it, it's very, um, 
you know, it's very universal. Anybody can do it. It's not hard to achieve. So that that's what we've done, and that's what we recommend to our customers. So then, of course, the next step is to get in there and, and harvest the potatoes. How how do you decide when the potatoes are ready to harvest? I know for a lot of growers, your people are getting dieback on the vines well before frost. Is that happening in in your varieties? Well, we kill them when we want them dead. Um, you know, the the fact is, first off, uh, as soon as you see blossoms out there uh, on plants, you're going to have tubers that you could start to be harvesting. Um, it's not that a potato needs to blossom. Uh, they are being vegetatively propagated, so um, the blossoms are there. God put them there for us to enjoy. But it does give you an indication that that's when the tubers are, are they've already set and they're starting to develop. So in our case, um, uh, we sell very little uh, amount of potatoes roadside, so we really want uh, you know, want to do the harvest once and for all in the fall. So um, what we do is uh, we kill the plants with our propane flamer again. Um, uh, at the time, you know, what we're trying to get is, you know, like any farmer, we want to get a good yield, but we're not chiefly concerned about yield. So we we kill the plants in their juvenile stage um, when the uh, tubers are uh, full of youthful vigor and have not fully sized up like you would for a processed potato or a table stock potato. And because we kill them at that stage, uh, that maintains more vigor in them. So again, that vigor is directly translatable to higher yield in the next generation. So um, we we start to go out. We count the number of days since we planted. Uh, we, we develop a chart every year based on what was the planting day, um, and then we, you know, we keep weather records. So we're, um, you know, okay, you know, did we have uh, drought stress to where, you know, the plant, the crop is a little bit late because they, they weren't getting the water when they needed or something like that. Uh, so we'll, we'll add or subtract days based on a historical record. So we more or less know how many days it takes of main uh, growing days to kill a different variety. And then because we plant our late varieties first, our early varieties second, then we start killing and harvesting our early varieties first and our late varieties last. So, you know, year in, year out, we grow about the same varieties. So we have about the same planting order and about the same killing order. So we know of the 24 varieties that we've got, we know which three or four varieties we need to be paying attention to first. And usually Reddale is the first variety that we kill. And we know it has a, um, well, let me tell you my philosophy about potatoes. If you can't find two serious problems with a potato variety, you're not looking at it hard enough. Every variety <laughs> has something wrong with it. So your job as a farmer is to decide what qualities does this excel in and what you know, negative qualities can I live with? So in the case of Reddale, as I think I said earlier, it tends to set uh, not the highest number of tubers, you know, maybe four tubers per hill if, you know, if it wanted to. And the uh, organic trigger that we spray on during the green sprouting process has improved that to some years we'll get seven, maybe even eight. So it, it really is a help. But what we'll do is uh, dig in the rows of the... Um, uh, Reddale, and when the when we find the first tuber 
that has hit three inches, we know that's time to kill. Because um, if there's sufficient water in the soil at that time, it'll take about five days for that plant to die in our flaming process. And that three inch tuber will go to two, uh, three and a half inch tuber in five days. And it's more likely than not to have a hollow heart. So, uh, with red dale, that's a variety that we like to cram in the row. We plant them 6.7 inch apart, 3,000 pounds of seed per acre with the trigger. And in that way, by killing them and not letting them go, uh, they can quickly go to oversize with uh, lunkers. So we're very cautious about that. Um, so then we know, okay, then after Reddale is probably going to be, you know, we've got this sequence. It'll be Caribe as the next variety, which is not nearly as susceptible to hollow heart. And then some years, uh, Red Cloud is a funny variety. In some years, it may size up almost as quickly as the Reddale. So we've learned that we've got to keep an eye on that, keep an eye on Yukon Gold and Onaway, these early varieties. So we kind of have... Um, a historical record, and we know which uh, suspects to be checking first. But we're in the hill uh, on a regular basis digging and seeing how the uh, uh, tubers are coming and killing them at the appropriate uh, time. So our killing process, we're using that same propane flamer, and it takes generally two passes to do uh, do the kill. Uh, we go in uh, first, and that's just to try to wilt the plant. So uh, we're going through relatively fast, you know, maybe maybe two and a half or three miles an hour uh, over the canopy, and we've got these flamers, and you know, it 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 sounds like a freight train coming, um, and it basically singe uh, wilts the plant. It um, it does not burn them to smithereens. Uh, you could do that, but I don't think you could afford to do that uh, for the propane usage. But um, we go through the field and um, flame them that way, and then we wait for 24 to 48 hours, uh, hope that maybe we get some nice drying weather. And then we go in for a second pass, and in that case, uh, we slow down the tractor so that we're going probably about a mile and a half per hour. Uh, and this is all, uh, it's a liquid propane uh, system, and we're operating at uh, 30 pounds of tank pressure. And we go through and we basically, um, at that speed, you end up burning off virtually all of the leaf area, which by now have dried to where they burn off pretty readily. And then for the most part, all that you're left behind is a green stem, you know, that's maybe uh, two, two and a half feet tall. And within a week, that'll keel over and then it will desiccate and dry out so that by the time you're ready to harvest, you can harvest any time after you go on out and check that lone remaining stem, and there will be absolutely no green matter left in it. It will be dried. There won't be any, you know, it will be dried and brittle. It won't have any uh, uh, any green in it or any moisture in it. At that time, that correlates with having developed um, uh, a nice skin on the tuber, and it will be ready to harvest. So that process is about, I like to do it uh, in three weeks. Um, the later you get into the fall as the temperature drops, that could increase uh, the amount of time. And that's assuming that you have adequate moisture because that process uh, is a biological process. And in fact, the tuber is uh, losing moisture from its skin, uh, but it does take some moisture in the soil in order for that process to uh, 
to occur. But, you know, the best way to do it in my book is, is to figure on about three weeks. And there are, you know, what you don't want to do is to be, uh, the, the phrase up here is up against green potatoes to where the potatoes aren't green, but the tops are still green and you're beating them up, running them over the harvester because they haven't had enough time to get uh, healed up, and, and they start to feather out, and they look horrible. So then the harvest process, you're using a pretty standard potato harvester to get these out of the ground? Well, um, we uh, up until nine years ago, uh, we dug the old-fashioned way, uh, digging with a two-row John Deere digger, and then we would have uh, kids uh, pick those potatoes and put them into, first into barrels, and we switched to... Uh, pallet boxes in 1999. So uh, Arusa County is one of the last places in the United States where they closed the schools down for potato harvest break, and they've been doing this since World War II. And uh, so the beauty of this is our kids have never missed a potato harvest. So um, anyway, as the years go by and as as farms have gotten larger and larger, and the smaller farms that would harvest by hand have disappeared, uh, we became um, concerned that they would uh, at some point abandon the potato harvest break. And I've, I've got friends that have been in towns where they, they decided in June, after they had planted their crop in May, they decided in June there would be no potato harvest break that same fall. And that farmer had to scurry and get a harvester together because he'd been a hand operation. So uh, we decided that the day, the time was upon us to switch over, and we imported the first Yuko uh, potato harvester from Finland, uh, in the first one into North America. And Yuko is spelled J-U-K-O, and uh, I think it's still online. But if you go, uh, the, they've got a 10-minute video. It's called the Yuko Super Midi, and they've got a couple of guys uh, with red jumpsuits on from the factory with Yuko printed across their backs, and they're showing the, uh, you know, it's a sales film, but um, uh, it's interesting to watch, and it's really a well-made harvester. It's somewhat common on the organic farms in uh, Europe, and when we decided that we wanted to switch over, Again, because we have a European-like intensive operation, we decided that we would go for a European style rather than the extensive ones that are plentiful here in Maine. And so into the, into the pallet bins and then and then into the storage, which we talked about earlier, actually, when we were talking about that physiologically aging of the potatoes and how important it was to get them cooled down as quickly as possible. Yeah, it, so it's not complicated. The beauty of this harvester is uh, the potatoes are dug up they go up a primary bed that drops most of the uh, dirt, and then you've got left, at least here in Maine, you've got potatoes and rocks, and then there is a separation <laughs> mechanism that works really well, but you've still got maybe 10% of the uh, potatoes and rocks being in the wrong side on the inspection table. So you've got uh, four workers on back, and you've got rocks going down one side into a rock hopper, and then you've got potatoes going down the other side directly into the pallet box in which they're going to be stored in. So the workers on back will toss out an occasional rotten potato, and then they'll toss the rocks from the potato side of the conveyor uh, to the opposite side, and the potatoes that are on their way to the rock dump, they'll uh, toss them over so that they end up into the potato box. So it's a, 
Uh, our boxes are four foot by four foot by four foot, and they hold about 2,000 pounds of potatoes. And, um, you know, last year was a great, the best year we had, I would say, in at least 10 years. Some guys were saying it was the best year in 30 years. And, and I was working every morning uh, trying to repair pallet boxes because we had run out of pallet boxes. And uh, farmers actually abandoned harvesting some uh, you know, 10, 20 acres a piece last fall because they ran out of places to store the potatoes. It was that kind of harvest, yeah. So having walked us through the entire season of a potato, thank you, Jim. This was this was fantastic. I want to turn here and go to our lightning round. So what's your favorite tool on the farm? Well, if it was a mechanical tool, it would probably be that propane flamer. Um, we use it on potatoes. We use it for uh, stale bed carrots, uh, uh, you know, six days after planting carrots, uh, table carrots, we um, uh, we flame the bed, and that takes out the weeds. So that is a tool I would hate to have to farm without. And um, if it was a hand tool, I would say it would be a stirrup hoe that uh, we wear them out pretty regularly, growing the uh, uh, crops like you know beets and uh, carrots and parsnips and onions that we grow. And I always ask everybody, what's your favorite crop to grow? But I think I probably know the answer yeah, to that. I think, I think you know the answer. Uh, <laughs> we're really into potatoes. And, you know, I think that's one of the things you really need to love the crop that you're focused on. And, uh, um, you know, th this this area that we're in, it, it is a real potato-centric culture to the extent and to this day, if you get a nice day in September and early October, you wouldn't say in Arusa County, gee, this is a nice day. The expression, and it's not forced, it's just natural. It's, you know, this is a good day to dig. And everybody <laughs> up here has worked on potato farms, you know, back in the old days and, and up until the 60s when the first harvesters came in, everybody was picking by hand. So, um, you know, back 40 years ago, my first potato harvest, our town of Bridgewater has a population of 600 people. And back then, we had 30 farms in town that probably had an average of 15 people working on a crew. So you look at that, and that's 450 people that are working at potato harvest in one town where the population is only 600. So everybody was part of this potato culture, and it's changed now. Potatoes is a crop that has lent itself towards mechanization and consolidation and kind of industrialization, but um, yeah, it was a really exciting time up here uh, in, in days gone by where, you know, 40 years ago we had 1,200 potato farmers in Aroostook County, and we're now down to 100. So times have changed. The trucks are immense. It's amazing. Some of these trucks are driven on farm fields, but, you know, they're tractor-trailer size, but, you know, it's just, it is a a crop that can go towards industrialization and with all of the socioeconomic issues around farming nowadays, you know, uh, they've gone that direction. And it's it just kind of sad that, you know, our town, we're now down to about five potato farmers in town. Uh, and, you know, there used to be many. And, you know, some some towns now just have one or two potato farmers left in them. It's It's just a different day than it used to be. Do you have a favorite book about potatoes? Well, I've been thinking I was going to write one uh, for years, and uh, being a farmer, I don't get around to doing a lot of things that I'd like to do. Um, and then one came out 
from my friend uh, um, uh, Walter D. Young, the potato breeder at Cornell, and his dad, uh, Henke D. Young, uh, the potato breeder at uh, Fredericton, New Brunswick. And uh, it's a really good book. So they've kind of taken the pressure off. I think since their book is written, I probably don't need to write one now. But um, I, I think it's called The Complete Book of Potatoes. And uh, uh, I've teased Walter. I said, you know, now is your boy going to go into potato breeding so that this is going to be kind of a gen you know, three-generation dynasty? And, and uh, time will tell, I guess. But uh, Walter is a, a great guy, and his father... Uh, Hilke, which he's Dutch and he goes by Henry to most people. Um, but he was the breeder of uh, Caribe, which is one of our favorite uh, varieties. Um, uh, and, and he's such a nice man. And I saw him at an organic conference in the Maritimes. Uh, first met him maybe 15 or 20 years ago and, and was quick to go up to him and said, you know, of all the varieties we grow, that uh, Caribe is one of my favorites, and it's one of our best-selling varieties. And this big smile came across his face. These potato breeders live a very long and lonely life. You know, if they uh, go through 100,000 crosses and get one good variety out of that, they're a good breeder. And sometimes good varieties fall by the wayside. And uh, anyway, Hilke was really, uh, really genuinely pleased to hear that there was a following for this variety. And, and it's a great variety. You know, it's the one variety that we've listed in our catalog for 25 or 30 years now. And we say this variety should be grown in every garden. And it's that valuable a variety. It's so early. It's got so many things going for it. And, and, uh, it was made that much more special because I know the potato breeder who brought it uh, into this world. It's and it's it is really a fantastic variety. It's one of those that um, just that that iridescent purple skin and then that bright white flesh. I think it's just. I mean, even even without the eating quality, it's a it's the thing is a work of art. Oh, it's beautiful, and and, and you know every potato farmer I know is like a little kid in the fall. And as you're driving the harvester and those potatoes boil up out of the hill that the harvester is digging, uh, it, it's, it's a moving experience for anyone. But those, my neighbors are, are raising round whites and russets to dig up a hill of Caribe. It is so beautiful that, that lustrous purple skin. It's just, it's hard to describe. It is just so beautiful. I love it. And, and we've got people that are round white eaters that have gone, you know, come down every year to get Caribe from us because they love the taste and the texture. And for, for a round white Arista County person to eat a purple potato, you know it's got to be a good potato. <laughs> That's right. And finally, if you could go back in time and tell your beginning farmer self one thing, Jim, what would it be? Oh, jeepers. I mean, in hindsight, seemed like we, we, we tried so many different crops, tried to figure out what can we make a living at, and, uh, you know, went down so many false paths in trying to, you know, down different rabbit holes. And I wish I could have avoided that and, and focused on it. And I think now maybe younger, you know, we, we were inventing everything back then. Nobody knew how to do this stuff. Um, so I think that was a necessary process, but I think of how much time and effort we went down channels that really weren't going to work, but we didn't know it at the time and there was no one to tell us that. But I wish that I'd have, um, 
being able to spare myself that. But, you know, the thought of growing potatoes and making a living from selling them, it took us 20 years to figure out how to do that. And now, well, I guess, you know, 15 years anyway. Uh, and I, I wish we could have figured that out uh, sooner. But I, I think that's just part of part of the process is you've got to uh, um, cut your own teeth. And so I guess maybe is now that there's this tremendous wealth of experience out, you know, there are um, probably hundreds of thousands of years of organic farming experience for young people to draw on that 40 and 50 years ago did not exist. So ask a lot of questions, you know, become friends with older farmers and, you know, let them mentor you because you'll save uh, a lot of, um, um, you know, misery. And in my case, uh, though he was not an organic farmer, I had one neighbor that was a, a great guy. Uh, his nickname was Doss, so Doss Morse, and he was born in 1899. And he was what I think an anthropologist would call us um, a, a subsistence farmer. Uh, he grew potatoes, he had cows, had uh, you know, horses had pigs. Uh, they'd uh, uh, churn the, you know, separate the cream, and they'd make butter, and they'd sell the butter at the store to help pay taxes, and they'd feed the skim milk to the hogs, and they'd raise cobbler potatoes and Jacob's cattle dry beans. So when I started in, I raised cobbler potatoes and Jacob's cattle dry beans, you know, 35, 40 years ago, and learned a lot from him. So I guess he was my source, but um, you know. He, he was a skeptic to the, to the ideas of organic farming, and, and uh, I would hear this expression, that's not the way we do things in Aroostook County. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, and my respect for him, I wasn't going to argue with him. Uh, he'd done this his whole life, and, and I had some new ideas and, and didn't have experience to back it up. But uh, anyway, I learned from him and, and uh, uh, ended up, uh, you know, he... He was a wise man. He'd gone to school through the eighth grade, but he had knowledge of how to do virtually everything I ever asked him. He either had done it himself or he knew how somebody had done it. So I think in, you know, our ideas on, you know, what wisdom is, uh, he, he had all the wisdom in the world and, and it was great to have that. And I think, I think in the trade was to see a young person, you know, when I came in in the seventies, everyone was leaving the farm. And that what he and his wife, Etta, they were married for 67 years, what they did wasn't really appreciated, and that's kind of how it was communicated. So for a, a young fellow to uh, be interested in learning about all this, you know, I think that was, uh, that was good for them, too. So uh, we had a number of good years together before uh, uh, Etta passed on, and then uh, uh, Doss moved on into the nursing home. But... Uh, Anyway, search out people that have done it because they'll, you know, they'll share with you and, and, you know, organic farming is the best life possible, but it's also probably about the most difficult life. It's a challenge. We're in the age of cheap food and the government still has, uh, you know, animosity towards organic. So it's, it's not an easy way to go. So you do need to use your community to support yourself. So, you know, focus on that and use some of the benefit of people that have gone before you. Thank you, Jim. Before we go, if people are looking for more information about where to get your seed potatoes, where where would they go and what's the right time of year to be placing your order? 
Well, uh, we ship potatoes 10 months out of the year, uh, uh, so we're going to start shipping in August, but we take orders anytime. The easiest thing is we do have a mail order catalog, a free catalog, so you can access everything by going to our website, www.woodprairie.com, and uh, we've got, um, you know, a transactional website, so you can place an order on the website. Uh, you can call us on the phone, place an order, you can mail in an order, fax in an order, however you want to place it with us, we're happy to get it. But I do recommend that um, you place an order in the fall before January, because some of the varieties that we grow uh, do start to sell out early on. So uh, if you order in the fall, you can basically get anything that you want. If you wait until after the first of the year, you may have to... Um, uh, listen to uh, substitutions that we're offering for sold-out varieties. Jim, thank you so much for this wealth of information about potatoes. I just, I love it. Well, uh, I love talking about potatoes, uh, uh, so I'm happy to talk potatoes with anyone, especially you, Chris. Thank you, Jim. Okay. All right. So wrapping things up here, I'll say again that this is episode 83 of the Farmer to Farmer podcast, and you can find the notes for the show, including instructions for green sprouting and building green sprouting trays at farmertofarmerpodcast.com by looking on the episodes page or just searching for Gerritsen. That's G-E-R-R-I-T-S-E-N. Don't forget, you can support the show by going to farmertofarmerpodcast.com slash donate. Whether you're donating to the show at farmertofarmerpodcast.com slash donate, shopping at Amazon through the link at farmertofarmerpodcast.com slash Amazon, or showing us your love by leaving us a review on iTunes or Stitcher, your support matters. Thank you. If you enjoy the podcast, I'll bet you'd enjoy being on my email list, The Flying Rutabaga. You can check that out at farmertofarmerpodcast.com or purplepitchfork.com. Thank you for listening. Be safe out there and keep the tractor running. <laughs>